Thank you, Annette. It's good to be with you again today. Those of you who are here, those who join us on, online, we thank you too for joining with us. We're going to be looking at a passage in Luke chapter 15 for the third time. We've been looking at the parable of the two sons and the father, and we've seen that that's really a parable of three different people, three different hearts, sort of, that have been revealed to us in that. And uh, and we're going to look at that for the last time this morning. So I want to read the text to you, beginning in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15, and then we'll jump into it. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set out for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to, to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and his found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. And his brother, the servant said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father said, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story once more that reveals your heart and the heart of your son uh, for us. We pray that you would bless us now as we look at what that heart exactly looks like and we would be challenged by it to flee to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, when we looked first at the older brother, we saw that uh, he really represented the people that Jesus was talking to, that the people who were there to hear these parables, the parable of the lost sheep, 
the lost coin and then the lost brother. Uh, the, the people that were there listening were upset at Jesus because he was a friend of sinners. And so Jesus told these parables, and it left those people who were in the original audience livid at Jesus, not, not crying tears of what a great story, but they were actually upset at him uh, because God, uh, through, through Jesus, was talking about uh, his heart for sinners and how quickly we are to judge other people. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the way we think about God shapes our experience of God. Uh, we're going to be talking this morning about a father in the parable. And I know for, for many of you, uh, talking about a father and relating that to God is not an easy thing. It's true that none of us had perfect fathers. None of us have been perfect fathers. Uh, we all fall very far short of where God is in his fatherhood towards us. But this parable speaks of a wonderful father. It speaks of a father that uh, is extending himself in love to both sons. And we want to see this morning just why it is that this father's heart and his heart toward us especially is so wonderful. So the older brother's heart we saw a few weeks ago, it was described as being dutiful, being calculating. It was a lonely heart. He was angry, judgmental, and hard. Last week, we saw that the younger brother's heart, the one who went away, his heart was ambitious. His heart was also very self-centered. He too was lonely, and eventually his heart needed to be broken uh, so that he could, his heart could be astonished at the love of the Father. This morning, we sh we're going to see four characteristics of the Father's heart in the parable, and the first one is the fact that it's a vulnerable heart that the Father has in this parable. It's vulnerable because he was willing to do what his son asked, even though what he asked was um, a terrible insult to him. When the son, second son came to the father and said, give me my share of the inheritance, he was basically, as we saw last week, saying to his father, I, I can't wait until you're dead. Give it to me now so that I can have some joy out of it right now in terms of what he thought it would be. So basically, because that father's assets, all that he had to pass on to his sons, were primarily in land and in livestock and in, and in uh, cattle and so forth, what that meant was that the father had to liquidate stuff. The son was really asking the father to take your life as you know it and tear it apart separate it all out so that I can have what is coming to me. And we saw that in most uh, cases, the older brother would have received twice what all the other siblings would have received. So look at it in terms of a two-third, one-third. The younger brother was saying, Father, give me a third of everything you have and whatever that takes. And the father couldn't just turn that into cash. So he had to give the land to the son. And then when the son turned around and sold everything that he had, gathered together all that he had, it says, what we know there is that he actually sold the property. Um, he knew he would lose the land, I believe, when he answered his younger son's request. But that was, that was his ultimate act of vulnerability. And that's God's act of, of vulnerability to us, is that he lets us go. He lets us go. Uh, 
there's no constraint in the Father's love for us. There's no force. He desires our love for him to be free and to be returned. And so he makes himself vulnerable to the, to the ups and downs of our lives uh, before we know him and even after we know him. It's a vulnerable heart. It's secondly a patient heart in the parable because the father, it said, he waited for the son to return. He waited for him to return. And so he was patient. And that's really God's posture toward us as his children and toward the world in general. In 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 9, it says that God is a patient God, that he's, is, he's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, it says, but that all should come to repentance. And so he allows history to play out. He allows time for people to understand their need and to turn back to God. He allows us time to see all of the dead ends that we've pursued in order to replace God in our lives, all the broken cisterns we talked about last week. He allows us to go and pursue those things. He's patient with us so that we will eventually turn back. When theologians talk about this verse that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, theologians are quick to talk about the different wills of God. And we, we talk often about two different wills of God. We say there's what God demands. That's the will of God when he expresses himself. It's kind of the law of God, you could say. But there's also what God does, what he demands and what he does. That That's a different thing. That We, we also read in God's word that whatever, whatever comes to pass is part of God's will. We often just leave it there and say God's will is either what he demands or what he, dis- what he does. But I think there's another way in which God's will is expressed in God's word. And it's not just what he demands and what he does, but it's also what he desires. And we have, we have a, a problem sometimes talking about that because we can't fit all of that together. Why doesn't what God do match up to what he desires. There's mystery there that we can't fully understand. And so we shy away from it and try to compartmentalize God in, in terms of a, a twofold distinction there. I think there's a, there's a third distinction there, that God is patient. He's not willing that any should perish. Even Jesus, when he went into the city of Jerusalem after Palm Sunday, he cried over the city. And he said, how often I wanted to gather you as a, as a mother, as a, as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. There's a desire for God's heart that's expressed really throughout his word. And, and that's the desire that he has for us to turn back to him. But here's our, here's our quandary sometimes, friends, that the fear of consequences keeps us from confession and fellowship. We know that there's a barrier. We know that there's something wrong. And we feel as if in order to really come back to God, there's stuff we need to get done first. We need to do business with ourselves. Uh, we need to deepen our commitment uh, in some way, or we need to straighten out our lives. But what it ends up being is a commitment to really self-righteousness on our part. Because ultimately, deep down, we're, we're saying to ourselves, the gospel really can't be true. It can't be true that God is, is patient, that he's going to quickly turn his heart toward us in forgiveness. And so we, we stay back, and God is still looking for us to return and to, and to be embraced by him. And the irony is that when we do finally 
return, we realize that God knew all along. There was no surprise about what we were doing in his heart, in his mind. He knew, and he was patiently waiting for us to return. The third thing we see about the Father's heart in this parable, it's vulnerable, patient, but it's also forgiving. He ran out to meet his son. And as we saw last week, he didn't even let his son finish his rehearsed confession. You know, he's, he got halfway through it. And about the time he was getting ready to say, just make me one of your servants, the father just, just cut him off at that point. He took his words for what they were, and he said quick to his, uh, his servants, let's welcome this sinner back. Let's welcome this son back into the family. He's not just going to be a servant. There's a, there's a, a truth here that's expressed about God's incredible willingness to forgive and to separate us from our sin. In Psalm 103, the psalmist uh, writes this, David says that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. What, what is being expressed by David in that psalm is that God is, is ultimately willing and anxious to separate us in his mind and his heart from our sin and to see us as people that are, are righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. The, the striking thing in that psalm is that it says that uh, he separated his, our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And there are people that have made note of the fact that if you look at a globe, what you realize is that the east and west never meet. Uh, north and south, they do meet, though, don't they? I mean, if you go, like if you take an expedition to the North Pole and you, you go all the way to the top and you get there and you, you're one step away from the North Pole and you take that step and then you take one more step, you're going south at that point because this step is right where north and south meet. And if the psalmist had said God separates us as far as the north is from the south, we'd say, well, there's at least two points where those do come together, the North Pole and the South Pole. But if you look at a globe and you see that God separated us from our sin, as far as the east is from the west, they never come together. They never come together. You go east, you go west, but you never meet up at any point because there's always an east and there's always a west. And that's how God says that he deals with our sins, that he separates us from them. And the east never meets the west. It's a forgiving heart. But then the final thing I want you to see this morning is that it's an extravagant heart. It's an extravagant heart. The father in our parable is open to both the younger and the older brother. And what it's teaching us by how he relates to both the younger and the older brother is just basically this, friends, that God wants us, his desire is to want us more, frankly, than we want him. He wants us more than we want him. 
and he, and he goes out to the younger brother as he comes back with open arms. He says he hugs him. One of the famous paintings of this scene is um, a painting of Rembrandt of the return of the prodigal. And in that painting, one of the things that, that uh, art critics have noticed or people who analyze art, they've noticed that the hands are out of proportion. In the, in the painting, the son is on his knees and the father, you, you see the, the front of the father as his hands surround the son and the hands are out of proportion. They're just a little bit bigger than what they ought to be. And I believe, most people believe it's Rembrandt's way of saying that that's the welcome of the Father. It's, it's bigger than it ought to be. It's bigger than it ought to be because God's heart is an extravagant heart. And he offers us the blessing of relationship with him with those outstretched arms. There's an expression that if you're a football fan, you uh, probably heard announcers use when they describe a certain situation that happens in a, in a football game. It's when the quarterback goes back to pass and it's a very quick pass. It's going to be over the middle, and the, the wide receivers or the tight ends are going down maybe a couple of steps, and then they're cutting into the middle, and the quarterback's going to throw a pass right over the middle, maybe only four or five yards, and then he's hoping that the receiver can catch the ball and, and run. Here's the problem, though. All the big, strong, burly guys that want to take the head off of the receivers are right there in the middle. And so it's a very dangerous place for these receivers, especially the, the wide receivers who usually are, are smaller and way less, sometimes 50 or 60 pounds less than those linebackers or safeties that are right there. And often what will happen is they'll go over the middle, the pass will come, it'll be a pretty good pass, but the receiver won't catch it. And you realize when they do the replay, it's because he was seeing other people coming at him. And there's an expression that they use when that happens. They say the receiver had alligator arms. The receiver had alligator arms. How many of you ever heard uh, that on uh, expression? Here's what it means. We know, I mean, if you're a botan, uh, if you are into biology, you know that alligators don't have arms. They have four legs. They don't have two arms and two legs. But when we turn them into cartoon figures, they have two, le uh, two legs and, and two arms, not four legs. And so uh, we... But when you look at the alligator, the back legs are very strong and long. The front legs are very short. And so what it's saying is that when those receivers sometimes go over the middle and, they're, and they know that they're getting into dangerous territory, their arms get very short. You know, they're, they're like this trying to catch the ball instead of extending themselves out where they're vulnerable and they can really get hammered. And sometimes the ball will just go off the tips of their fingers and the announcers will say he had alligator arms on that one. He was kind of protecting himself, keeping himself uh, close so that he would not get hurt. God does not have alligator arms toward us, friends. When God receives us back, he extends fully in the most vulnerable position that he can be uh, to meet us at that point. And he's really extravagant in how he meets us. And that's why when uh, our friend Tim Keller wrote his book on this parable, uh, it wasn't called The Prodigal Son. That's usually how we refer to this parable. When he wrote the book, he entitled it The Prodigal God. Prodigal God. And it's like, wow, what, is, what does that mean? Why did he say that? Is that a misprint? Well, just a little clue. You usually don't have misprints on the title. 
Okay, usually the title is just pretty tight. Uh, maybe somewhere in the book there might be a, an error, but not in the title. And here's what Tim meant when he said the prodigal God, because prodigal is a word, if you look it up, that simply uh, says profuse or wasteful expenditure. A profuse or a wasteful expenditure. And we usually attribute that to the younger son who went out and spent all that he, all that he had. But Tim is making the point that it's really God who's prodigal here. It's really God who has been profuse and, and has expended in, in what we might even consider to be a wasteful way. He's been so generous, so prodigious to us. His heart has been so extravagant toward us. And friends, that's where uh, we often come to the turning point in our relationship with God, whether it's initially or in our ongoing relationship with him. So often we have this understanding of God that isn't quite right. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't see him as extravagant. We don't see him as forgiving. We don't see him as vulnerable and patient, and so we hold back. But finally, we come to the point where we see that he's a God who is quick to show compassion and slow to show anger, and he's abounding in love. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, it says there that the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He, he desires, okay, he desires to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. When I read that verse, I always think of that question, you know, that we sometimes ask someone when we we're trying to get at what their passion really is. We'll say, what gets you up in the morning? <laughs> what, what causes you to want to get up and face the day that's, that's ahead of you? What gets you up? This verse says that God rises to show you compassion. That's what motivates God. That's what gets him up, if you, would, if you want to put it in those terms. One writer has said that ultimately there's just two ways to live this thing we call the Christian life. We can either live it for the heart of Christ or we can live it from the heart of Christ. See the difference? We can either live it to try to achieve God's love or to receive God's love. We can live it for the smile of God, to achieve the smile of God, or we can live it from the smile of God that we've received and have the confidence that God loves us. And so we move out with that same kind of fear. We can live it, uh, same kind of confidence. We can live it uh, for a new identity, or we can live it from a new identity. We can live it in order to attain union with Christ, for union with Christ. Or we can live it from that union that God has created uh, in, between us and our, Lord, and our Lord. So it all boils down to whether you achieve it or receive it. And the gospel says that we must receive it. We must receive it. So don't tarry. Don't wait. The Lord rises to show you compassion. I read this morning of a, of a lady that I've told this story several times. Her name is Brenda Rover, and, uh, or I think she pronounces it Reaver. Brenda Reaver. Her husband is Dave Reaver, and he's someone that you may have seen on TV. He's a minister who speaks a lot on, um, and, and you look him up on YouTube and you'll find his testimony. He was a Vietnam veteran. I read just this morning that Brenda actually died two months ago from, apparently from COVID-related 
issues. But the story I, I always tell is one that happened when she was just 19 because Dave went off to war in Vietnam at that point, and he promised his wife that, that when he went off, he would come back without a scar. He said, I'll come back without a scar because she was so concerned and so young and felt so vulnerable. vulnerable. And what Dave didn't know was that the Lord had something different in, in store for him. And it's a long story that you could go online and listen to him, him tell it. But basically, he was on patrol one day in a river trying to scout out where the enemy was encamped. And he had uh, one, of the, one of the ammunition, pieces of ammunition he used was something called a phosphorus grenade. It's a diff- different from the grenades you throw and, just, and they explode with all sorts of shrapnel type stuff. Phosphorus grenades actually when you throw them and they explode, they burn. And if they hit someone, they'll burn inward on that person. It's very, a, a very awful kind of, of weapon. And this one patrol they were on, they were receiving fire from a certain area, and he wanted to, um, it, it was his job to uh, get to that area and, and to disable that area. He had a phosphorus grenade in his hand, and he, and he, he pulled the pin and went to throw it. And what he didn't realize was that uh, he was in the crosshairs of a sniper who was on the bank. And when the sniper shot, it didn't hit him. It hit the grenade. And when the grenade exploded, it exploded right into his body. And almost immediately, the whole side of his face was gone. And parts of his body, the, the, the grenade went in. And it was just a gruesome story that he tells. But here's where the story turns. He had several operations, finally made it back uh, to the U.S. where he was in a ward for victims of, of burnings like that that were badly disfigured and, and marred. And he had been there uh, at times when wives had come to see their husbands for the first time. And he said he actually had seen wives who would look at their husbands. They would take off their rings and they would toss them on the bed and they would say, I can't deal with this and they would walk away. And Brenda was coming that day to see Dave for the first time, and so he was understandably nervous. She was 19 years old. And when she came in to the room, in my mind, it's one of those scenes where they say, okay, fifth bed down there on the left, and she would go down to the fifth bed and, and take a look, and then go back to the foot of the bed and take the chart to check to see whether it was her husband, because it didn't look anything like she remembered. And when it said Dave Reaver on the, on the list, she put it down. She walked forward. His, his one eye was open, the only eye that worked. And there were tears coming down his eyes. And she turned his head to the good side, gave him a kiss, and said, Davey, welcome home. And he began to sob. And when he tells the story, he says, what my wife said to me next was what changed the trajectory of my healing and allowed for me uh, to come out of the deep depression that I was in because I promised her I would come back without a scar. And as she kissed him and welcomed him home, he started to cry. And she said, Davey, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he says, I, I didn't fulfill my promise, and I can never look good for you again. And then came the words from Brenda that day, and here they were. She said to him, Dave, you were never that good looking in the first place. (laughs) 
And he said those words began the healing for him because he realized uh, that her love for him wasn't contingent upon how good he looked. It wasn't contingent upon whether surgeries could restore any of his supposed former glamour that he felt about himself. She said, Dave, you just never were that good looking in the first place. That's not why I loved you. That's not why we're together. And I will always be here with you. And I thought, wow, can you, can you boil the gospel down to a better story than that? That God says to us, when we feel like we have to wait until we're presentable to come to God, we've got to, we've got to do something in order uh, to turn, have him turn his heart to us in love and forgiveness. When we're tempted to think that, God says, I'm not, I'm not drawing you to myself because you're good looking, <laughs> you're lovely, that your heart is pure. I'm drawing you to me because I love you. Do we really think, friends, that our obedience or our moral improvement will in some way strengthen God's love for us? If, if there's any sense in which we have to help with the gospel here, we've lost the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has done it all. And when Jesus Christ did it all, he had no alligator arms. His arms were stretched for you and for me. And he didn't just give one-third of what he had to us. He gave it all. He gave it all. And so Jesus in this parable um, is really the father in the parable. He's the one that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are upset with because he's been a friend to sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus says, that's my heart. I'm the, I have the heart of the Father, that my arms are open. I'm not hedging my bets on you. My arms are open. Join with me and experience the feast and feel the love of your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning again that you have given us a, a parable that strips us of any sense that we might have, that we, we have to contribute to the equation. But whether we see ourselves primarily as the younger brother who has been very offensive to the father and, and run off uh, and, and spent everything that the father had worked for his whole life, or whether we're like the older brother who, where we've done it all right all, all our lives and now we're, we're hard and hardened towards sinners. Father, in either case, we're far from your heart, and we're far from your love, but we're far from experiencing the love that you want to share with us. We pray that we would see you as one who wants to love us more than we even want to be loved. And may we run to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.